Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 493 of the podcast and it is Friday the 12th of June 2020 as I record this. So today I'm talking to Chris Spizak about editing. She has a great novel editing workbook and we recorded this a few weeks back when I was in the story editing phase of Map of the Impossible. So it's a good look at the process of self-editing from the macro level right down to the detail. Because we are writers and self-editing is so important. Of course, you want to work with a professional editor after you have done the most you can to fix up your book. Now, uh, this is primarily for fiction authors, but a lot of the tips are also useful for non-fiction and memoir authors, as we all need to deepen our writing and improve our editing process. So that is coming up. In publishing news, Apple is discontinuing iBooks author as reported on Mac Rumors, withdrawing it from the store on the 1st of July, encouraging writers to transition to Pages, which has all the same functionality now. So uh, from the um, Mac Rumors site says, two years ago, we bought book creation into Pages with key features such as the ability to work on iPad, collaborate with others on a shared book, draw with Apple Pencil and more. Pages is a great platform for making books. And uh, if you don't remember, iBooks author was m- for much more sort of, ex- let's say, exciting book design. <laughs> uh, but remember, they also launched authors.apple.com a few weeks back as a portal for Apple publishing and also enabled PC users to publish direct to Apple books. So it's good to see that Apple is really uh, investing in making the books program uh, easier to access and not to have so many different options. But really, this portal authors.apple.com is, is a good place. Then last weekend, the hashtag hash publishing paid me went viral as authors reveal their book advantage ad, advantages, <laughs> not advantages, advances. Uh, author L.L. McKinney called on white authors to reveal their book advances on Twitter using the hashtag hash publishing paid me to reveal differences in what black and non-black authors get paid by traditional publishers. Now, this has gone way beyond uh, what it originally started out as. And I think this is well worth going to have a look at. I'll link to the uh, spreadsheet in the show notes. And when I last looked, there were over two and a half thousand examples of advances. Now, it's interesting for the point of view of authors of colour, some quite shocking things like award winning author N.K. Jemison puts her stuff in. Um, But it also lists gender and sexual orientation as well as genre and publisher. So if you want to get a look at the variability of advances, it is so crazy. I mean, you go in there and there's ranging from zero because, of course, some people take a or are offered uh, only a royalty deal as opposed to an advance deal. But there are things from a couple of grand all the way up to like two and a half million (laughs) 
for one book. And there's some extraordinary figures in there. And it's quite good for us to look at as indies. I mean, going way beyond the um, race side or even if you just look at the numbers without even looking at the, the people involved, it's fascinating to see the variability, even within the same genre, within the same imprint. So, uh, I mean, obviously they don't list things like names and agents and all of that, but it sure is interesting and just shows you how different things can be in the publishing industry. So go check that out. Um, Hash Publishing Paid Me, there's lots of stuff about it or uh, link in the show notes to the spreadsheet, which is a shared Google Doc. Also, a couple of useful things this week. Written Word Media has done a survey on how readers pick what to read next, concluding a book's description and cover are the most important factors. A uni- an entertaining or unique plot was the most important factor in influencing readers' enjoyment of a book. Now, that's interesting. I presume, I don't know if that's skewed towards a particular type of reader, but, um, you know, so often we're told, oh no, it's character, 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 but this said plot was actually the most important factor in influencing readers' enjoyment of a book. Um, Readers do consider the average review score when evaluating whether or not to read. And if given an opportunity to learn more about authors, the audience agreed they would like most to know the author's inside scoop on characters and storylines from their book. And that's why I always do an author's note at the end of all my books and slowly am doing videos and the podcast, the other podcast, Books and Travel, over time I'll be going into that kind of thing. So that's on Written Word Media, links in the show notes. And also a great podcast episode this week from the Six Figure Author podcast on pre-orders. Everything you wanted to know about pre-orders, really a good show. I highly recommend that because... um, Uh, Lindsay and Andrea and Joe go into the pros and cons of pre-orders and the best ways to do them and all of that. And it's so interesting if if you've only been in the indie space for a couple of years, what you might not know is that we fought for this for, for years. I mean, I remember... It was the thing we all wanted. We wanted pre-orders. And then finally we got pre-orders and you can do them up to a year ahead. Map of the Impossible is actually on pre-order right now uh, for July. And I'm going to put some pre-orders up for the rest of the year as well. I'm going to use pre-orders to really spur me forwards into my um, the rest of my fiction this year. You can do ebook pre-orders on all platforms. You can do print pre-orders on Ingram Spark. As yet, no audiobook pre-orders. Hopefully that's something that will come eventually. But definitely check that out. Just look for Six Figure Authors uh, podcast on your podcast app or go to sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. Okay, so my personal update this week. Uh, My mini course, Your Author Business Plan, is out now. And I've actually, (laughs) I basically did a sort of um, half selfish thing, which is I really wanted to update my own business plans. (laughs) So I thought, oh, well, I'll just make a course about it. And in the process, it's helped me a lot. And uh, I just feel like I'm making some big shifts in my brain at the moment. I'll talk more about it when the shifts have settled down. (laughs) But uh, certainly going through the author business plan really helped. And it covers both fiction and nonfiction. And I share details across production, marketing and financials, as well as strategy and all of that. You can find it at thecreativepen.com forward slash courses 
on the website or thecreativepen.com forward slash learn, which will take you straight to the teachable page. It is 99 US dollars plus local taxes, uh, depending on where you are in the world. And you can get percentages off depending on if you are a Patreon supporter or if you're an existing course member, you will have got emails about that. And a couple of people have started already. Holly Wharton, thanks Holly, tweeted, I've just started your author business plan course. I've done many business plans over the last two decades, but it's so good to have a template for an author business plan. Thank you so much. This is perfect timing. And Connor Whiteley says, thanks Connor, says just finished the new course and it's great, filled with great information. Beginners will find it a lifesaver and extremely useful. Other authors will still learn something new. So there you go. Um, One testimonial from a beginner and one from Holly with 20 years worth of business plans. (laughs) So I always find this useful myself and I hope uh, you will too. So go to thecreativepen.com forward slash learn. Uh, Also in personal news, I got my editor's notes back for Map of the Impossible. My uh, story editor, Jen, um, it's always so good to get that feedback from a first reader and Jen Jen totally gets me and we kind of have that understanding which happens when you work with an editor over many many books and uh, so I just always feel so much better once she said yep this does work and obviously there's a few things I need to change um, before it goes to the proofreader and so that is moving into the final stage and I'm excited on that to complete the trilogy of course the issue being (laughs) that the last time I completed a trilogy which was um the London crime thriller books or the London psychic books what happened was I finished the trilogy and then we decided to move we left London and those three books really were based on living in London for nearly five years it was and pretty I know I love London still love going back to London but those books were so based on my experiences and you know walking around and and when we moved to Bath and we moved um, near to this antique map shop and I used to walk past the map shop and that's how I got the idea for um Map of Shadows, which is uh, the the uh, the main character Sienna inherits a map shop from her grandfather, and that map shop basically, and that that map shop's not even there anymore. And I, <laughs> what's weird is I'm slightly concerned. I mean, we've bought a house here and everything, but I'm slightly concerned that now I've finished that trilogy, I might just want to leave again and go somewhere else. Uh, but of course. I think possibly my itch to get moving is related to the fact that we're basically still in lockdown here in the UK. I think start, certain things are starting to open up, but given that I work from home anyway, uh, it's not really an issue. Also, uh, I guess I'll I'll share this this week because um, it's, it's pretty much almost over. I mean, uh, there's a bit of a hook to next week because my husband had a uh, fever this week. And so in the middle of the night, you know, I I woke up and I was like, oh no, this is it. This is the thing. This is the COVID. And, uh, And I went on to the government website and they said, if you have a temperature of fever then you must get tested so uh, we ordered the test as I record this we have not we have the test but we have to do it just before the courier comes uh, I don't have the results but I I must say I felt a bit a bit terrible in the last week but nothing major and uh, Jonathan's fever broke pretty fast within like 12 hours and then he slept for a couple of days and I felt exhausted but I mean who knows it may it might be it it might not be it um obviously I'm hoping the test comes back 
negative because otherwise we're going to have to stay indoors until we've been inside now for a couple of days and uh, goodness, I'm over it. (laughs) So, I mean, fingers crossed, if we've had it, then that's a good thing, I guess. Getting it in a mild way is is a good thing. Um, But yeah, who knows? But it's it's so weird because I had massive anxiety for about 20, 24 hours when I was very, very worried. And it, it, you kind some days you forget that this thing is going on and then you, something happens or you read the news and you realise that we're still in a pandemic. <laughs> so yeah, it's been a bit of a weird week, but I'm happy to uh, get moving on the book again. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments. Hannah said, fascinating episode. Last month, I just stepped away from a draining job where I was spinning my wheels. So what Max says about a rest ethic really resonates with me. It's amazing how much healthier and more productive I am now. Uh, Karen says, you've been my company during these months. I've been listening in Chile for each of your episodes, doing laundry, running in the treadmill, working on my vegetable plot. We're in full quarantine since mid-May. And a lovely picture of Karen and the vegetables. Uh, Jacqueline Rowe says, this was fascinating. I love the idea of mental crop rotation and completely relate when the creative pen talks about having worked harder during lockdown. I've definitely noticed my need for a break. Yeah, and it's so weird because again, when uh, Jonathan's fever started and I felt fine, well, I didn't feel fine. I felt, you know, I felt a bit under the weather this week. I've had headaches and stuff but and just really tired. But uh, I thought it was my need for a break, obviously. And then when he had this fever, I went into massive work mode again because my I think when I'm anxious, I work even harder because I think, oh no, what if I get sick? I have to finish all this stuff. That's why I got the course finished. And I was like, I've got to finish all this stuff in case I get sick. And oh no. So it it was just weird how, yeah, when we all have different responses to anxiety and mine is to just work harder. (laughs) So (laughs) clearly, uh, I think it's about what, what can you control? And when you can't control some of the crazy stuff that's happened, well, you can't control most of what's happening in the world. And we all do our little bit, obviously, but it's very difficult when everything seems so out of control. So the thing I can control is how many hours I put in. (laughs) So yes, I I have actually, I've got the print version of Max's book on my desk and it says rest ethic. And uh, yeah, I, I I still need to sort that out. Uh, And Laura Bradbury says, your podcast was a lovely dose of AI. Thank you for giving me another reason to get outside and walk Pepper. Very cute doggy picture. Uh, And finally, I wanted to say thank you to Thomas McDonald, who tweeted, just started audio for authors and listened for two hours. I couldn't believe the number of times I nodded my head and said to no one, yep, that's correct. (laughs) Your insight was dead on in this book. I'm really happy about that, Thomas. Thank you. So today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, writing and editing software that goes way beyond just grammar and typo checking. And I am about to use it, just going to do my last checks and then put Map of the Impossible through Pro Writing Aid before it goes to my proofreader. And this is the perfect sponsor for today's show because Pro Writing Aid can help with many of the things we talk about, like word overuse, sentence variation and much more. 
So why should you even consider writing software? Well, before you send your book to your editor, it needs to be the best you can make it. And ProWritingAid can help you do that with its suggestions for improvement, including passive voice, always an issue for writers, sentence length variation and complexity, adverbs, repeated words, things like commas, which are my own personal nemesis, and typos for the specific type of English you write in. If you are a word nerd like me, uh, then check out the word Explorer, which goes way beyond the thesaurus in helping you discover new words for your manuscript, which is really useful in the editing process. And the reason I have switched to using ProWritingAid after using Grammarly for years is that ProWritingAid works with Scrivener, so I no longer have to copy and paste chapters, and it's much better for long-form content like a book. So this is going to save me tons of time. And basically, I'm going to, once I finish my map of the impossible changes in Scrivener, I'm going to open it in ProWritingAid and fix it up before exporting and sending it to my proofreader. So you can check out the free edition uh, or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link, prowritinga.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A. So prowritinga.com forward slash Joanna to get 25% off the premium edition. And I've also done a tutorial on how to use it, the creativepen.com forward slash prowritingaid tutorial. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. I really appreciate it, especially in this crazy time of history. And we are really living in history right now, don't you think? I mean, some of the things that are going on. Ah, anyway, thanks to new patrons, Dennis Carney, Sarah and Robin Lehman. I really do appreciate your support on Patreon. It demonstrates you enjoy the show, find it useful and want it to continue. And you can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month or a couple of coffees a month if you're feeling generous and you'll get the extra monthly Q&A show, which I'll be doing soon for June. Okay, you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Chris Fizak is a non-fiction author, an editor, podcaster, and international speaker. Today, we're talking about the Novel Editing Workbook, 105 Tricks and Tips for Revising Your Fiction Manuscript. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Joanna. Great to be here. Oh, thanks for coming on the show. I actually uh, have a print copy of your workbook. I bought it in print because I thought it was so good. Oh, thank you so much. It was so much fun to pull together that resource that... I had been teaching those materials for so many years, and I had been working with my editing clients for so many years, saying the same things over and over. And I realized there were some universal truths about editing that the world didn't seem to know. So it was time to write that book. (laughs) Oh, and a great reason to write a nonfiction book, to be honest. Like you already have an audience and this just helps you. So, but before we get into that, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and editing. Sure. Well, I'm one of those people who has been writing since I can remember since I was a little kid, but I had been teaching university writing courses and just loving the joy of enjoying the power of the written word, connecting with different audiences in different ways, whether you're storytelling, whether you are writing manifestos or theses or whatever it happens to be. And while I was teaching, I kept getting approached on the side to write I don't know, CEO blogs to ghostwrite for them, getting to write 
product descriptions on Amazon, getting to write um, somebody who I knew who had a novel who needed some help with that. So I kept getting approached on the side because people knew I was really just obsessed with the power of language. And I could really dive into the nitty gritty of just not only grammar, but just the approach of how you put your words together for the most powerful effect. And so I was doing that for a while on the side while I was teaching. And I had this moment of realization saying, wait a second, I am having so much fun in the classroom, but I am having so much more fun getting to work in all of these different spaces just with the power of language. So slowly, I kind of trickled my way out of the classroom and into my own writing and editing business. And I haven't looked back since. It's been 10 years now. Oh, fantastic. We started about the same time then, I guess. Yes. (laughs) Great. I'm a longtime listener, too. I remember listening to you back in your Australia days. Ah, well, there we go. Well, one one of the early crowd. That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So um, let's start with some definitions around what editing is, because many writers seem to think, many new writers, let's say, new writers think it's about typos and grammar. Uh, But what is it really? Oh, my goodness. I'm so happy you asked this question, because so often when I say that I'm an editor, everyone starts thinking about the grammar police and we start getting into very heated debates about Oxford commas or no Oxford commas. And yes, that is a piece of editing. But that proofreading, that final line edit is really the absolute last piece of editing. When you're talking about editing, I like to look at it in terms of three different levels. You have your macro edit where you're really looking at your entire story structure. Does your entire plot make sense? Does your story begin in the correct place? Does it end in the right place? Are your characters fleshed out as much as they need to be? And yes, I said fleshed out, not flushed out. That's an entirely different conversation. (laughs) But so then you have your big edit. Then you have your micro edit where you're really looking at your sentence level, looking at your word choice, looking at your sentence structure, looking at how you are distinguishing your character's dialogue and how that's separate from each other. All of those little pieces, sentence by sentence, and not until you've gone through the entire macro edit process, the entire micro edit process, then you can get down to commas and spelling and typos and that type of thing. But so often when someone hits the end on their first draft of their manuscript, they are so proud of themselves and they should be. They should throw some confetti in the air and celebrate and high five their nearest friends and whatever else is going on there. But you don't just jump into page one, sentence one grammar edit. That is final stage. Mm, I agree. I'm actually editing right now uh, my book, Map of the Impossible, and I'm doing that first macro edit, that story structure. So, um, and of course, I have a process because I've been doing it a while. But for people who might just be starting out with that first macro edit, how do they deconstruct that plot? How do they examine the story structure to make sure it hangs together properly? Well, what I always like to say is what is the one big problem of your book? Now, I'm not saying what's wrong with your book. I'm saying what is your protagonist going after? What are they looking for? What are they questing after? And if you can figure out what that one big question is, then you can have your little roadmap for deconstructing your entire project. Now, of course, there are always plots and subplots, and you can have all sorts of questions going on within a book. But having your one major problem that carries your book from page one to the final page allows you to look at every single scene within that book, every single chapter, every single page, and saying, is this on target? Or am I getting really excited about this emotional moment that perhaps 
perhaps has nothing to do with my actual plot? Am I getting really excited about this historical fiction research that I did in the process? And you know what? Maybe that sniper that I go on about for 70 pages really has no point in this romance or whatever it happens to be. If you always return to that question of what is the problem of a story and is this scene related to that problem, you could often figure out where you start wandering away from your core story. Mm. And what are some of the tools that might help? For example, I do some sort of reverse outlining because I'm a discovery writer. <laughs> I just make it up as I go along. And then when I'm doing this kind of editing, I, I will write a couple of lines about each um, chapter so I know what's happening. And then I, sometimes I have to move things around because they don't, you know, one scene is at night and the next one's in the middle of the day and it just didn't work together. So what are some of the tools for um, organizing that story? Absolutely. So people can do this in so many different ways. And there are so many fabulous apps from Scrivener to so many others for organizing and just giving yourself a brief little snapshot of every little scene or every little chapter. Sometimes you can even just write it all out on note cards. I like for especially the discovery writers, doing that reverse outline of your book, doing it where perhaps you'll have everything written out and then you go through your entire book, not looking at commas, not looking at word choice, but just writing down what is the point of the scene? Why is it there? Who meets who? Where do they go? What are they trying to achieve? And just writing a sentence or two for every single scene. And then putting it all out. And again, this can be done in Scrivener. This can be done on index cards that you roll across your office floor. And then just looking, do all of these scenes make sense next to each other? Are they all related? And by doing that reverse outline process, you can suddenly see it, realize that that scene that you might love so much, it doesn't actually fit the whole. And you have a chance to actually look at it all from that bird's eye view, because really when you're in the weeds of your book, you can get lost really quickly because you know how much you love your story. You know those characters so well, you know what your plot is doing, but a reader can get lost and you never want to have your reader lost or confused about why something is happening. That reverse outline can kind of keep you on track. Mm, and make you realize what you're missing. <laughs> exactly. Like, how on earth did that person get from there to there? <laughs> And it's so funny because we all do it, especially those of us who are discovery writers. I'm the same way that all of a sudden you get passionate about this moment and your characters start running and then you're chasing your characters as you're typing. And it, that is sometimes the most fun part of the process. But then you have to realize that chase could, be, could have been brilliant or that chase might have taken you a little bit off track and you need to pull it back a little bit. Mm. Then, I mean, we've mentioned scenes there, but one of the other things I do at this stage of the edit is chop up my scenes uh, into chapters so that my chapter will have more of a, a want to turn the page ending. So, right. you know, instead of having a nice, you know, when I write my scenes, it's often it feels like a complete scene. Um, but if I ended it there, no one would turn the page necessarily. Right. So what what do you think about chopping scenes into chapters? So there are page turns. I write thrillers, so it's kind of important. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But I mean, whether you're writing thrillers or absolutely anything, you 
as an author, have a goal to get your reader to turn the page. I mean, why else are we doing this if not to have the readers continue to read our books? <laughs> so your goal to finish every single chapter, every single page, really, um, every single ending of a scene is to figure out a moment to kind of close the moment, but be- have your reader begging for more and having new questions arising, new concerns, new emotions evoked so that they are concerned about what will happen next. If you tie up anything through the course of your book too neatly with a bow, it's like, oh, well, that's that. It's definitely time for bed. It's definitely time to put down that book. You never want to give your reader an invitation to put down your book. No, open questions, as you mentioned, that is definitely the way forward. And if you close one, you have to open something else. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about characters. How, When we're doing this first macro, how do we know whether we've done a good enough job of our characters? And what are some ideas for strengthening them? Self-editing could be so tricky. And when I say self-editing, I mean editing yourself. It can be so tricky because when you're writing, you probably see this character in your head. You are watching them move. They are alive. But translating what is going on in your brain through your fingertips to your keyboard doesn't always work as vividly as we think that we're actually doing it. So what I like to say is people are incredibly different. Everyone walks down the street in a different way. The way I sit in a chair and the way you sit in a chair is probably remarkably different just because we are two different people. Focusing in on mannerisms and body language and especially emotions is something that I really tell people to pay attention to because think about the way you get excited, how your face looks, how your body moves, how your fingers might move. Every single part of you reacts to excitement in a different way than someone else does. Every single person reacts to anger or sadness or depression in a different way physically. If you know a person really well, you can understand that they're happy without them holding up a sign and saying, hey, you know what? I'm happy right now. You know them (laughs) because you understand them and how they move and act and um, enter a room. You understand it. And that's your goal as a writer is how do you get your reader to understand your characters so well that the second they walk into that room, just by the way they're holding themselves, the way they are kicking that rock down the street, the way they are scratching their arm, the way they are pushing their hair in front of their eyes, every single person should have little tells, little emotional tells that let you get to know them better. So you never have to single to say a single emotion on the page that every single one of them is transparent and it's different for every character. You can't have the same smiley, smiley person for every single character. Yeah. And I think it's also searching your manuscript for uh, evidence that you're you're doing that wrong. So uh, feeling, the word feeling. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. Morgan was feeling something. No, you know, you have to describe it in a different way, right? Rather than just telling, showing, not telling. <laughs> exactly. I have, and I recommend that all writers create a little spreadsheet for themselves, or if the word spreadsheet just scared half of your listeners, I'll say it this way. <laughs> Make a little list of words that are your cheat words. This, there absolutely fine in a first draft of a novel, but in your later drafts, look at the word realize. 
search for realize through your manuscript because you know what? You shouldn't be telling your readers about realization. Your character, your readers should be living through those realizations at the same time as your characters and experiencing it with them. Look for that word feeling like you just said. And there's so many other examples of that. Of That's kind of just lazy writing. It's fine for a first draft. It helps you get that story out. But later, this is where you do the fine tuning of making your characters alive, making those emotions real, making all of those moments a journey for the reader as much of a journey for the characters. Mm. Another thing, and it's so it's great we're having this conversation now because I'm literally in this edit <laughs> and I'm and I and I'm become aware. You become more aware of your the things you do regularly. So the other thing I've been doing is adding in smell because I'm a very visual writer. So I I describe right. scenes. You know, I, I I describe sense of place. I think that's one of my strengths. But I completely leave out the way anything smells. <laughs> so well, and obviously smell- it's not. It's not an every page thing, but, you know, how how do we include sensory detail? Oh, my goodness. I'm so happy you asked this question because it's true to be vivid in our description. And we can talk about the balance of description versus other story elements in a moment. But to be vivid in your description is really what brings your book alive for your readers. I always like to say it's like having a movie screen where you see things happening, but you don't hear it. Mm. but you don't experience it. If you just rely on the visual sense, you're only having showing part of the movie. It does not, it does not come alive that way. You have five senses as a person. So allow all of those senses to come into a story. But my one other little cheat sheet moment here that I always like to tell my editing clients and anybody I talk to is for some reason, we are always inclined to introduce those sensory details as she saw, he heard, it smelled like, There is no reason that you need to have those couple words using she saw, he saw, or he smelled, it looked like, whatever it is. Avoid that sensory verb because what is that bringing attention to? That's bringing attention to the character who is experiencing whatever you're describing. Just get straight to the description. Cut out the she saw, the tall building that was taller than anything she'd ever seen in her life. Forget the she saw, just that building was taller than anything she'd ever seen in her life. There's all sorts of little ways that you can tighten your writing and make it come alive for your writers. And sensory details and using all of your senses is powerful, but make sure that you're doing so even more powerfully by cutting those sensory introductions. Uh, That's such a good tip. And it's one of those, again, new writer things that you notice later on that you can't see it in your own writing at the beginning. And we'll come back to why editors are so useful. Um, (laughs) You did mention there uh, description versus other story elements. So you're going to have to tell us about that now. (laughs) Yes, of course. Oh, I could just talk on this all day. So when you're looking at that macro edit, again, this is that big picture edit. We're not worrying about those Oxford commas or no Oxford commas yet. One of the big things to worry about is your balance of story elements, because I think every writer has a favorite piece of the process. Maybe you're a master of dialogue. Maybe you are a poet when it comes to your description. Maybe you love action scenes and these one after another staccato sentences that really just make your pacing just speed by. But any story has to have a balance of all of these things. If it's a screenplay, you can get away with all dialogue all the time. But if you have all dialogue all the time in a novel, again, that's where we go back to that movie metaphor is 
that's just dialogue on a blank movie screen. We can't see the characters. We can't see the movement. We can't see where we are in this moment. There's no atmosphere. You have to make sure you balance that description and that action and that dialogue and any other narration that you might have have going on. If you just have one element for any duration of time, you are cheating as a writer. You need to make sure you're balancing it because really that weaving of all of those different story elements is what makes a story come alive and be so vivid and re- reader's imagination. And you can almost see that on a page, can't you, with, uh, you know, because dialogue is often a shorter sentence and, you know, using, if if you see a page that is dense text as a novel, (laughs) then something is possibly wrong. Exactly. I mean, it's, we live in a moment where we don't all have so many hours per day to spend on a book. We live in a fast paced world. So if you have this one beautiful page that is one entire paragraph of prose. It might be gorgeous, but readers just simply don't have the attention span for it. You need to mix it up and just make it all come alive for someone. What I like to tell people is to look at any given 10 pages of your book. And when I say look at your 10 pages, I am actually going to say don't look at your first 10 pages because you know what you edit the heck out of? You edit the heck out of your first 10 pages because that's where you always get so excited about the editing process. Choose 10 pages in the absolute middle of your manuscript and look at those 10 pages and grab four different highlighters. Grab one highlighter for every time there's dialogue. Grab one highlighter, different color for every time there's description. One for action or some sort of actual movement and one for kind of the calmer narration or background or thinking or whatever else is going on there and highlight 10 pages. And you can do this on the screen. You don't have to waste paper or you can be someone who prints it out if that's what works for you and just examine your writing because then you will notice just in the middle of your story when you're not aware of what you happen to be doing that you probably favor one over the others. Or maybe you're missing one story element completely that you need to integrate a little bit better. It's a really great exercise for anybody, no matter where they happen to be in their writing career. Mm, Absolutely. And you mentioned action there. I think sometimes people think action means like fight scene, but with um, dialogue, often it's not, you know, hello, Morgan said. It's, you know, Morgan (laughs) entered the room, hello, you know, or, or hello, Morgan entered the room, or, you know, some kind of movement as right. well, uh, instead of dialogue tags, what what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Because I feel like again, some writers will always be he said, she said, or whoever said, as opposed to having movement. Right. I challenge again. I have so many challenges that I like to give people <laughs> when it comes to their writing. When it comes to dialogue tags, I like to challenge people to how many can you cut but still have an entire idea of what is going on in a scene. So if you took away every single he said, she said on the page, how could you still convey who is speaking and how they're speaking and the emotions of that moment? And the answer of course, hint is not to add their names into dialogue because that's another (laughs) faux pas that happens in early writers is that they have characters talking to each other and Joanna, they are talking about something. And Joanna, did you know this? And oh my goodness, Joanna, I just thought of this other idea. Oh my goodness. It's hilarious. And it's one of those things that we don't realize we do it. And every early writer does do it because they realize, hey, I'm going to make this conversation more realistic. And people use names, but they don't use names as frequently as sometimes (laughs) appears on the page. But what I like to do to challenge people to get rid of those dialogue tags is to think about, okay, what's going on in this moment? Maybe as they are having this conversation, they are cooking together. And as they're doing that, Joanna picked up the ladle. 
And then Chris pulled the Parmesan cheese out of the refrigerator. And you can just have little actions. It doesn't have to be a sword fight or fists being thrown to have action that can complement the dialogue to give your readers a hint of who is speaking and the mood of the room. And again, this is a great place to think about description because description is not just the walls were yellow and the floor had a carpet. This is where you can kind of evoke what would a character notice if this person is in a really depressed mood? They're going to start noticing some really depressing things about the room. The fact that that switch is broken and it has broken for 10 years. And she'll think about that later, whatever it is. That's hideous <laughs> writing, but you get the idea. Think about what you're describing and how that description actually helps the scene itself. Yeah. And it's funny because I think we also have default uh, movement or, or action. So a lot of my characters, I'll be reading it and it'll be, uh, Finn nodded and then someone else nodded and then someone else nodded. And there's a lot of nodding that goes on and you have to go back and change out some of those actions for some other things. Oh, absolutely. And this goes back to that again. I am the person who has my spreadsheet of my overused words. And that's what I always tell um, my clients that they need to go back to. Look at the look up in your manuscript is using the find function on whatever word processor you're using. Look for the word smile. And then when I say look for it, I also tell them to look for S-M-I-L. And that's not because I don't know how to spell the word smile. <laughs> but if you use just S-M-I-L, it'll catch every use of smile, smiled, smiling, smiles, any version of that. But I tell people to look for smile because sometimes we don't realize it, but our characters are almost maniacally smiling through our manuscripts. <laughs> yeah, because they, they totally are. All grinning. happy. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many ways to show happy and contentedness and love and passion besides smiling. And the same thing with smiling, turning, gesturing, um, nodding, sighing. Oh my goodness, people wink more in manuscripts than they do in real life, I swear. I don't um, even wink in real life. It's not something I would do. I don't think I ever put winks in my novels. <laughs> It's amazing how many um, early writers I work with that have characters who wink. And it's often multiple characters who wink. And again, not that many people wink in real life. So you have to be thoughtful with your winking. <laughs> <laughs> and look, um, we're having a laugh. Um, everybody listening, we're having a laugh. And if you feel like you do one of these things, we're not laughing at you. I'm laughing because I know I've done all of I these things. <laughs> And it's like, oh my goodness, when you go through this, you realise how many things you do. And it does take time to recognise this in yourself. So don't worry, people, if you're you know, not aware. That's the other thing. I think when you're new, you might not even be aware of some of these things um, over time. But another thing I wanted to mention was sentence variation. And I've become very, very sensitive to audio narration. And when it's a repeated rhythm of a sentence, the same number of syllables or similar sounds, uh, then I really notice it because I listen to so much audio now. So in this edit, I'm making sure my sentences have variation. So that, that I guess that might be slightly advanced because a lot of people don't write for audio. But in this world of increasing audio, what do you think about that? Oh, it's a very valid point. And it's true whether you're thinking about audiobooks or not, but just think about your go-to phrasing. Some people just have this poetic soul and they just write these sentences that go and go and go. But if your entire manuscript is made up of these sentences that just go and go and go, they might be beautiful, but they also might tire out your reader. And the same thing goes if you are a writer who just loves simple, sweet, short, staccato sentences. They are great for pacing a fight scene or any sort of action-packed moment. But it gets tiresome to read these short, quick sentences all of the time. 
So any writer, definitely with audio, you definitely hear it more in audio, but any manuscript, you need to vary it up. Lengths of the sentences, how you are starting your sentences. So often we have little um, preferences that we always start with a sentence with the subject of your character name or starting with um, the same type of phrasing at the beginning of a sentence. We just have to closely examine our habits because as you said, every writer is coming to this from a different place. Everybody does not, or excuse me, nobody is born a perfect writer. So many times people think, oh, it's a talented writer. He was born that way. She was born that way. But here's the big secret. No one is born an amazing writer. Everybody has to learn. Everybody has to practice. Everybody has to put in that time. We don't like to tell people that part. We like to think, oh, our books have come out and they're brilliant. We've always written this way. But there's a lot of work involved in becoming a great writer. So this is all of that little nitty gritty detail work that we just need to practice and take the time to learn because no one is good at this from the start. But we can be. Every single one of us can be if we try. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's the thing with some of the, you know, best loved and well-known writers, you know, they do things effortlessly. So we think we can do that too, straight out the bat where, and you know, we've been reading for many, many years. So clearly we can write things. <laughs> and I think the more you learn about story, the more you realise what there is to learn. And this is why I think I love being a writer, because I feel like with every book, you can learn something new and you can try something new and investigate and always trying to make your storytelling better. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's just not something that happens straight off the bat, as you say, and I, what am I on number 17 or something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, I'm still going, oh my goodness, what am I doing with this? <laughs> and it's been really funny for me because as an editor, as I've been putting my own books out there. Um, my first one was through a traditional publisher and working as an editor with an editor on my own books. It was very funny because you could tell the relationship began and they were a little bit nervous thinking that I was going to be incredibly defensive about my punctuation or my organization of that manuscript. Um, that was for my first book, which is called Get a Grip on Your Grammar. And I came into that relationship and I was like, no, no, no. I love the editing process tear this apart, find every little nitpicky thing because relationships and readers make any project better. You know your own project so well, but any relationship, even just beta reader friends in the creative writing community can make a project so much stronger, just having other eyes on it. Mm, Other eyes are good. So just a a couple more things. So another thing I do on this level is try and make things more uh, emotionally resonant. So often I might have, as you said, we mentioned kind of smiling or whatever and trying to evoke emotion more, but also add in theme, elements of theme, any symbolism, that sort of level that is deeper and it might only be little touches here and there. But what what are some ways that we can deepen our writing? Well, a lot of those pieces, and depending on what type of writer you are, sometimes people get really intimidated when they are writing their first draft of their project, and they want this to be deep and thoughtful and have symbolism throughout. So they just kind of sprinkle it throughout, and that is one way to do it. 
oftentimes I like to save a lot of the heavier touches like that, or I suppose you can say the lighter touches like that for the later editing stages. This is where you throw in those false leads to the murder mystery. This is where you've realized that one character would be a great person to cast suspicion on. Um, This is where you would have that little moment that you realize you have this beautiful symbol that your subconscious wove through there without you even paying attention to it, that you could kind of highlight a little bit more through your entire manuscript. A lot of that work is something that, in my opinion, comes in the editing stage, because if you try to do it while you're writing, there's only so much you can balance in your head at any given time, even if you are someone who is a heavy outliner. So a lot of that symbolism or um, false leads or just any sort of emotional resonance or atmosphere that you add in, save it for the later moments. And that's where you really get to start thinking about how can you add tension? How can you add darkness? How can you add um, different levels of emotion? Just save it for a little bit later. And again, this is where you can add details that depending on how you describe something, you can evoke a very strong emotion or tone just in the way you describe the outside of that house. Think Mm. about how you could describe a house and make it a very optimistic moment. Think about how you could describe the exact same house, but in a way that is terrifying. It's an interesting exercise in itself. But as you finish your book and you go back to these moments and you want to kind of create whatever atmosphere you're looking for, just think about how can my description do it? And then how can I have my character's emotions more on the page, but never using the emotion words? That's always the challenge with those emotions. Mm. So what what are any more, I mean, we've talked about lots, but any more <laughs> common issues, especially for newer writers with editing? a novel. I mean, especially like some people might be fantastic at writing nonfiction, for example, and then they start writing a novel and they realise that it's much harder than they expected. So what, what are any more of the common issues for new writers to watch out for? Sure. So sometimes I feel like we fall into cliches without ever realizing we're falling into cliches. And we think we're having this brilliant moment and we don't realize that not since the Wizard of Oz has starting with a dream or having the entire thing being a dream in the end been quite as successful as we think it is. <laughs> and it's one of those things that you write this glorious moment, but it was all a dream. Um, in the traditional publishing world, that's a red flag that you're probably not going to be getting a literary agent or publisher. I mean, not I'm never going to say never by any means, but that's just one of those signs that it's a cliche ending, that it was all a dream. The same thing with starting the entire project with a dream. Be careful with that. It is overdone. So you have to be um, very thoughtful just to make sure that you're not accidentally writing and starting a project, for example, with a cliche beginning. The same thing with if you're starting a beginning of a book or even the beginning of any given chapter with a character waking up. That might be how they're beginning their day, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's where your story should begin. Same thing goes with chapters that just think about how riveting it is to wake up in the morning, to slide your foot into the slippers, to walk down the hall, to pour yourself a glass of orange juice. Is this not the most fascinating story ever? Obviously, a writer could do it really, really well, but just always examine where you might be falling into some cliches of, That might be where you as a writer entered the story, but that does not necessarily mean where your final draft actually should begin. That's a good point, actually. Uh, I think the jump cut uh, scene management is something that maybe 
people don't understand. Like you don't have to describe everything about a character's life. As you say, you can right. you can cut from scene to scene without having to do all of that stuff. Like I don't think my character my characters frequently have an alcoholic drink <laughs> but, <laughs> or have they or have coffee, but they rarely eat. I mean they don't go to the toilet on the page. You know, these are all things Exactly. You, you just don't need to include everything. <laughs> you just you just cut. And I I, I know exactly what you mean. Um and some people don't understand that you just like if you watch a tv show the jump cut is exactly what happens in a book you know you can end a scene you can end a chapter you can put three little stars in in it and jump to something else exactly (laughs) yeah okay so um what can an author do themselves and when is it a good idea to work with a professional editor Well, I always challenge writers to kind of work on their manuscript as much as they can by themselves with that first self-edit. And before you dive into your first edit, I always say take a break from your book. If you just finished your manuscript, take a break from it. If it's a day, awesome. If it can be a week, even better. If it can be a month, fantastic. Your goal is to get yourself get yourself out of writing mode because your imagination is going, you know your character so well, you know your plot and your problems and all of these details so very well. But you need to edit, not as a writer, but you need to edit as a reader. So you need to be a degree separated from your project. Also, just you need time for that project to kind of percolate. You need to be able to take a shower and have that epiphany of that moment in chapter three, which you know is kind of weak, and have that answer. I just need a little bit of separation um, from your manuscript before you dive into your editing. And then to really just think about that editing phase in phases, not to start with sentence one, chapter one, and start reading through your manuscript looking for typos. That's not where you need to begin thinking about big picture and then the smaller picture and then the final proofread and beyond the self editing, um, always have eyes on your manuscript besides your own. And yes, this can be a professional editor. And as a professional editor, of course, I will recommend that. And I'll talk about more of where that is a really necessary piece. But even if you have friends who are readers, reading your book, if you have a writing group, awesome. Critique partners, even better. If you have people look at your book who are really thoughtful readers, no offense to anyone's mother, but your mother might have a good tendency of giving you a pat on your back and saying, I'm so proud of you. This is brilliant or possibly the opposite. But you have to make sure it's a reader who will give you valuable feedback, not just this is good or "Huh, that was interesting, but someone who can read something and say, you know what? There was that moment in that chapter that it was a little bit weak or that character's falling a little bit flat. Just anyone who can give you really solid advice on something like that. If you have that person or find that writing community, there are so many amazing writing communities, whether in your local area or genre specific um, that you can tap into, which is just so powerful. Um, And beyond, once you get some readers on your manuscript and take their consideration, and of course, this is your book, You are the author. Just because somebody says something does not mean that you have to change something. You are the author and you get to make those final choices. But consider everyone's advice. Consider where everybody is hung up because maybe what they're telling you is something that is an issue. Maybe what they're saying as the answer is not the answer that makes sense for your book. But maybe if multiple people are having the same issue on the same chapter, maybe that's time for you to reexamine it. So if you go through your own self-edit, if you go through a couple of readers and you realize you're still hung up, that's a great place to have an editor come into the conversation. Or similarly, if you're starting to do the traditional publishing world and you're sending out queries or pitches and you're starting to get past the query stage, people really like 
your query letter, that first letter you might send to a literary agent or to a publisher. But once somebody gets manuscript in their hands, just it's not moving past that stage. That's a great moment to work with an editor. And it's really important to notice that editors are not all doing the same thing. Just like we've been talking about different levels of editing, there are different styles of editors. You might have a developmental editor who is looking at those big picture pieces. You might have copy editors who are looking at not only... um, the micro editing, but they're looking at a little bit more of the grammar and the punctuation, all of that stuff. And of course, your final editor that you would have is your line editor or your proofreader, depending on what you want to call that person. And they would do the final sweep of your project. But do give yourself some consideration when you're thinking about an editor, about what you actually need. In the past over 10 years of being a professional editor, I have had many, many people calling me and saying, I need a final proofread of my project. And I really want that to be true, but so often we think we're in that stage when we're not quite there yet. So think about what your book needs. And then if someone tells you that you need to have a little bit more work on some heavier pieces, don't just be defensive on that and say, this is my baby, you don't understand pause and think on it for a moment and think, okay, maybe there is something else to consider here. Oh, definitely. And I still use, I have a story editor, so she's my first reader. I I don't take anyone else's opinion anymore. (laughs) I just, um, uh, Jen, she does my story edit and then I do all my own stuff. And then I have a proofreader um, before before publication. And I, I think... I learn something new with every book. So I am a total fan of um, professional editors and I'm a fan of your workbook, the novel editing workbook, because having all of these um, uh, things that we can check off, uh, you know, obviously you don't have to do everything. Otherwise you'd always be editing and never publishing. (laughs) But it is really useful to have that, which is um, why I got the book, because it's good to remind yourselves of these types of things. So where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? You can find everything I do at chrisspizak.com. But I realize that no one will ever spell that correctly. So you can also find it all at getagripponyourgrammar.com, which is a redirect to my webpage. And there you can find the blog that really started my entire career. I had an accidental blog that kind of exploded and turned into an indie published book, turned into a literary agent deal, and then a book traditional book deal. So the blog that started it all is still going. Um, I have a writing tips blog there. I have have a podcast there. I have a sign up for my monthly newsletter of writing tips there. Um, and I love connecting with folks. So do check it out. Thanks so much, Chris. That was great. Thank you so much, Joanna. So I hope you found the interview with Chris useful for your own editing process. The tip on keeping a list of your cheat words or your writer's tick is really important. We all have those words and phrases we overuse and you definitely need to go back and fix them in your edit. So definitely check out the novel editing workbook. And if you need a professional editor or proofreader, check out my list at thecreativepen.com forward slash editors. Right next week, I am talking to J.D. Barker about writing cross-genre, how he came to co-write with James Patterson, and tips for strengthening story ideas before you even start writing. It's a great interview, so you can look forward to that next week. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at 
thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.